Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and today our guest is Chris Peacock. He is a three-time entrepreneur with extensive experience in climate fintech, water, data, and SaaS ecosystems. His desire to create a climate-resilient future inspired him to start a business combining his experience in Internet of Things, water utilities, and agriculture. He seeks to improve the efficiency of agriculture and food production through the use of cutting-edge technology and data analytics. Chris is the founder and CEO of AgCore, a software-based platform that provides accurate and updated data insights and climate analytics for the agricultural economy, helping financial organizations pivot to a more sustainable investment strategy while reducing risk. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here today. Thank you so much. Maybe just to get started, could you sort of explain your career path and what really led you to found AgCore? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's not direct, for sure. It's been a bit circuitous over time, and, and the path of getting here has been has been fun and frustrating. I actually have an undergraduate degree in East Asian studies. So my plan was never to be in, in the world of software or fintech in any way, shape, or form. But when I graduated college, uh, like most college students, I was broke. And my dad asked me to come work with him um, over the summer in the family business, which was land development and housing. And as I was doing that and working with my family's business, we had acquired a 70 acre piece of historical farmland in northern Arizona. That farmland had water rights associated with it. We sold the family business, but still had the land and the water. So that, that was kind of my first venture into starting my own company which was a water rights consulting firm. And so I learned all about water rights and water markets and the true value of water as it pertained to agriculture and also to the urban communities. That then led me into about a 10-year career working within the, the water utility industry and helping water utilities better manage data and understand how to use that data kind of across the, the spectrum of operational efficiencies, but also behavioral metrics in the house and how water can, can best be used and serving up data to help people make better decisions around water use. That then kind of launched me into the world of software as a service and startups to go work with a software company that was doing some really cool stuff with the water utility space. I learned a ton about building products and the SaaS business and the SaaS ecosystem and really fell in love with the idea of selling software as a service as a recurring theme versus selling billable hours. So in December of 2016, I started a company, which was originally named Aquoso, now known as AgCore. And what we started to do was look at water risk for agricultural lenders. That then evolved into a much broader platform of helping agricultural lenders understand climate-related risks in their lending operations, but also helping them better manage their data and integrating bank data with climate data, which led us to kind of rebrand the company to AgCore earlier this year. Great. Thank you so much. I think it's really helpful for people to understand that oftentimes career paths and how people get into what they're doing today is very different than maybe where they started and having the ability to be mentally flexible and intellectually curious can really lead you in some interesting ways and interesting pathways, both professionally and personally. So I think it's really important for people to understand that. When you talk about climate fintech and you talk about your experience, what are some of the challenges that you're currently seeing in this space? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that even we struggled with early on was first just understanding what climate fintech really means um, and putting some definition around it. We hear a lot about offsetting carbon credits in the markets, buying credits, selling credits. 
And that's, I think, one way to think about climate fintech in terms of embedding the purchasing of carbon credits in every transaction. Over the last decade or so, we've seen this proliferation of green bonds that go to market to help build sustainable projects. I think that's another way to think about climate fintech. But in my view, climate fintech goes beyond both of those models by actually embedding climate into financial decision making. And the challenge is actually trying to tie climate models and data and information to financial transactions themselves. So in agriculture, this would be something like being able to tie carbon sequestration projects to the financing tools like loans and tracking the provenance of the data from the land through the financier to the carbon markets. And, th and that was a big challenge for us when we first started, which was how do we start to like really take this water risk data and climate data that we've been building and incorporate it into an entire portfolio of loans which means you have to fuse all of that data together, both geospatially and, and technologically. And it, it was a bit of a challenge for us to figure that out. And once we got over that hurdle, I think the next big challenge for, for us, but also for the industry at large, is how do you tie financial outcomes to the impacts of climate? And I think we're getting better at this and, and we're hearing more about it and we're surfacing more information and people are certainly paying attention. But you know, when you think about most of the climate risks that take place, they're long tail events. And we're just now beginning to face these long tail events of like extreme weather events. And so the ability to like actually price risk is still a bit of a challenge because these events are so big and so unknown and the models are so, so big. It's oftentimes hard to kind of figure out what are the financial implications of building, not just the models, but the implications to in our case, in agriculture, the growers, and how do you finance those things? So I think that's that's a really big challenge right now is still kind of end-to-end -end understanding the financial impacts of certain decisions. So trying to understand those financial impacts, when you think about the agricultural industry, do you think that is the biggest sort of hurdle for adoption of ESG practices and policies, or are there other sort of issues that you're seeing come up in this industry when you're trying to show people the data that you have to say this is what's happening and then have them leverage that data to make more environmentally friendly or just more financially sound decisions when it comes to the longevity of their operations. Yeah, I, I think being able to tie those financial implications to decision making is is one of the biggest challenges. I'll caveat that though with you know in agriculture I think there's some misconceptions at times, you know, small farmers are looked at as, as the good guys that go to the farmer's market that you buy your food from, the big farmers are the bad guys that are acting poorly and, you know, do, damaging the environment. And there's probably truths in both of those statements. But for the most part, I would say farmers have always acted in a very sustainable way. Their livelihood really depends on it. And I think the bigger challenge is there's a lot of pressure on farmers to not just do good, but to implement a lot of practices for the benefit of a third party. And the challenge is how do those farmers, how does the agricultural economy finance the things that we all want to have done on the farm to make farming not just more sustainable, but to like get more carbon credits to build regenerative agriculture. And so being able to tie kind of the, the financial implications back to the farm is definitely a challenge and understanding who's willing to pay for those types of things as well. I think that's been the biggest barrier, but I don't think there's necessarily a desire for farmers not to do those things. I think it's a matter more of how do you fund those things and still make those farmers profitable at the end of the day. And I think you bring up a good point. I think a lot of times folks outside of the agricultural industry really think of very specific 
ideals of a farmer. They think of someone who is either a, a small, almost a hobby farm, they're kind of retired, or older, and you know they're just sort of living off the land. They sell their things, like you said, in farmer's markets and have this sort of like idyllic life. Whereas I think we do, people do believe that large industrial agriculture has a lot of issues and is almost the bane of when we hear about things like there's runoff from farms, there's runoff that contaminates water, and there's soil depletion, that a lot of it is based on those practices that are in that are in place. But it's interesting to hear that you're saying, and it's true, right? Like your product, you have to make sure that where your product coming from is renewable and sustainable because that definitely impacts your bottom line. And I think for people who are maybe not into this, it's hard for them to make that connection because we typically don't hear from the voices of farmers in this country. And we're pretty divorced from where our food comes from in many respects. Yeah, absolutely. Like most people can't tell you where their their raspberries came from, right? And this is a global phenomenon in terms of where our, our produce and where our products are coming from. I think there's also a discussion to be had around the value of economies of scope and scale. And those really do matter in agriculture. Um, so one of the things we look at extensively is how can we bring eco- economies of scope and scale not just to the farmers, but to the financiers that we work with today, to the banks that lend the money. And we very strongly believe in, in the value of democratizing data and software so that we can get it into the hands of everybody versus just the large few who can actually afford it. And so I think like one of the ways in which we, we work through these barriers is by building economies of scope and scale into the products that can get into the hands of the farmers so that they can make better decisions and that they've got the same pricing power as the larger groups to afford the technologies to make these decisions and, and do better on the farm that they all want to do because at the end of the day, it makes them a better farmer as well. And that's a really good point. So I think that leads me into my next question, which you kind of semi-answered is, you know, who is the ideal target for climate fintech in the agricultural industry? And when you think about what, when is there, is there a pivot in which the size or the maturity of the organization, of the farm, of the owners, or maybe there's a place where they're more more attuned to to adopting products and services that you at AgCore may provide. So I'm just curious, you know, you talked a little bit about that, but could you go a little bit more in depth on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's a couple of ways in which we're already seeing this play out in the market. You know, there's some really great, what I would call climate fintech kind of embedded models from the, within the supply chain of if as a producer, you do a certain thing on the farm, we'll give you extra credits or we'll give you a discount rate on, on maybe the money that we're lending you across the supply chain. And then that benefit goes to, uh, let's say the CPG or kind of the final end, end user who's selling it in the broader market. That, that's kind of one way in which this is already taking place. For us as a company, we focus primarily on the agricultural lending institutions, so the banks that lend these farmers money. And we see them, them and insurance companies and other financial institutions, having just this amazing opportunity to better understand the risk in their portfolios of loans and insurance products. And as they gain better visibility into that, they can actually start to build new products that build that better serve their customers. So these could be things like dynamic interest rate loans for farmers who are investing in regenerative agricultural practices. The banks can start adding things like carbon and other ecosystem credits to the balance sheets of their farmers as additional assets. 
So there's some really interesting things that start to open up from a financial landscape to help farmers fund things that are necessary on the farm. And I'll say like we work primarily with financial institutions, but there's others in the space that are doing equally good things in terms of kind of like embedding climate into the financial discussion. EDF is a great example of this the Environmental Defense Fund. They've been doing a lot of work around the intersection of climate and finance. And they've been building out some pretty neat programs to help fund certain practices on the farm and, and tracking those practices and giving those farmers discount rates on their loans for doing those practices. So for us, we see the lending ecosystem as a major fulcrum point for making this this major industry change happen and better understand how to leverage climate. And I think what that leads to then ultimately is then farmers getting some of these decision tools and data tools into their hands by virtue of the work that we're doing with the banks. That's really interesting. And I think one thing that people, myself included, sometimes forget is that farmers are business owners and having them get this level of data, getting them the right resources means that they can drive and improve their business, improve efficiencies. And a lot of what you're talking about, even if you don't understand sustainability or ESG and, and some of these concepts and terms, you do understand innovation, you do understand data and have how having more of that can lead you to making better decisions, not just for yourself, but for your customers. So Chris, what are the trends that you are seeing that will impact climate fintech over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And you know, I always wish I have a, had a crystal ball, um, but I always revert back to my magic eight ball, which doesn't give me really good, good insights into the future. But there's two major trends that, that we're kind of looking at and think about on a pretty consistent basis. And the first is obviously climate changing itself. You know, the idea of feeding a growing population with degrading arable land and a climate with more frequent extreme weather events, it's just going to continue to wreak havoc on our food systems. And I'm optimistic that we can figure out how to adapt to this changing environment, but there's significant investments that we need to make in order to build resiliency into the food systems. So things like irrigation systems and investing in vertical and indoor farming and you know, getting money into the hands of smallholder farmers around the world that lack access to financing and are probably most at risk uh, you know, due to this climate volatility. So I think that's the biggest, I would say, trend that we're going to continue to see is more extreme weather events that are going to impact our food supply system, which creates obviously opportunity to create financial capabilities to withstand those impacts, which is what we're really focusing on today. And then the second, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't even mention it, right, is, is of course, generative AI, which is everyone, everyone is talking about today. I've been talking about the implications of AI and blockchain for a very long time, but we're seeing like how that's really going to upend many industries. And it's no different I don't think it's really any different than what we're going to see in climate fintech, because we can start to leverage these advanced tools to really gain deeper insights that combine the climate models and financial risks and grower productivity to start not just modeling better, but building better incentive programs and understanding resiliency better and how to deal with the impacts of these extreme events that we're seeing. So that combined with, with tracking the provenance of data from the farms to the public markets I think it's going to be insanely important for really going to embed climate into the agricultural financial system. So those are the two things that we think are kind of most true and will have the biggest impacts over the next five to 10 years. You know, I think there's a lot of other smaller things that we're going to continue to see. There's, you know, the kind of the food system in general has been changing in terms of what the diet requirements are, 
you know, there's a move to different forms of meats. You know, there's obviously the move to genetically modified types of, of crops as well to withstand these environmental impacts. So I think we're going to see a lot of different things occurring. And the one thing I will say is in agriculture, it has historically been known to be very resilient to anything Mother Nature can throw at us. So I'm optimistic that we'll be able to do the things that we need to do from a food supply standpoint. It's just going to take significant investments over the next couple of decades to, to get to where we ultimately need to go and build that resiliency into the system. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the ESG Matters podcast. And if someone wants to learn more about AgCor, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or to your company? Yeah, absolutely. They can send me a note directly, chris at agcor.io, um, or go to the website, agcor.io. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. Thank you for having me.